would invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Deuteronomy. Don't worry, it's allergies. And these are allergies that I think are free of COVID, so don't be afraid. (laughs) This is purely seasonal. Uh, It comes and goes. That last hymn or psalm we sang, Psalm 115, is not only one of my favorite psalms, but it's got to be right now one of my favorite tunes. And I think I sound like a bullfrog while I'm trying to sing it. I, I can't can't get loud enough to really um, feel as though I'm engaging in the sentiment of the song. It takes a little less effort, though, to talk, and so I hope I can make it through this evening. Deuteronomy 6, we will conclude this beautiful chapter that is a sort of fatherly address, yes, by Moses, but by God himself to the people of Israel. I remember when I was a kid um, and and would go to my grandparents' house. Uh, My grandfather was almost always in the same place every time I would go through that door. I remember it like it was yesterday. Every time I would walk in, their house was a a kitchen, a large kitchen, a substantial dining area, and then a living room all in one. It was just this massive, great room. And every night, as um, folks of that generation did, it was 60 minutes and oftentimes dinner in front of the television when they would get their nightly news. Y'all know what 60 minutes is, kids? You don't know. Do you know what television news is? You probably don't know that either. (laughs) And I would go, and he would be sitting in his armchair, and I would, it didn't matter the time of the year, every night he would be sitting there in a button-up, Oxford shirt, just like this, with a wool, full-on wool, and not merino or cashmere. I mean, the kind of wool that would take your skin off if you rubbed it hard enough. This wool cardigan, and I would just go, and I would sit in his lap, and he would just talk to me. And it's not, it it, it wasn't necessarily things of substance like what we find in Deuteronomy, Uh, but those moments were incredibly precious to me for a couple of reasons. Uh, he captured my attention with his presence. He was, my grandfather was over six feet tall. I don't know what happened. (laughs) I don't know what happened. But by the time he was in his 70s, he had shrunk a little bit. He was still a head taller than my dad and me. And I would just sit in his lap and we'd just talk, talk about the day, talk about the books that he would have. And I would just ask questions and he would dress me in a way that was, I was just in awe of him. When God brings Israel to that place at the border of the promised land, and they're there gathered by the Jordan, in essence, Moses is delivering to them sermons on behalf of the Lord. And what God is doing is he's gathering the second generation, the little children, the children born of the first generation. And he's saying, I need you to listen to me. I want you to listen. And Deuteronomy 6 is a fatherly address to his beloved children, wanting their attention to remind them exactly who they are and why they should listen to him. If we don't know why we are listening to God, we will never listen to him. If you don't know who God is, if you don't know who the fount of all law and exhortation is, you'll never do it. Why? Because it doesn't matter. Have you ever tried to parent someone else's kids? Have you ever tried to keep nursery? 
Yes. And they look at you like, who do you think you are? God is saying in Deuteronomy 6, I am your God. I am your father. That is why we ought to listen. And those things that are related to that principle that God is our father, not Pharaoh. And because he is our father and we are in his house, we live according to his rules. It is all about the relationship that we enjoy with God. Two points that I want to make tonight. First, wait, did I read the scripture? Okay, let me do that. That would be bad. <laughs> I'm just going to make it up. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules. That the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. I, I don't need to start in verse 1. Wow. Guys, next Sunday will be better. We're going to go to verse 10, not to verse 1. I, that is a beautiful section, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to start in verse 10 because I preached in verses 1 through 9. Don't worry, I have the right sermon pulled up. That would be really bad. Deuteronomy 6. Start the video over, Dorn. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Take 2. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to, gi uh, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full... Then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, sorry, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. And that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. This far, the reading of God's word, let me pray now. And I need a lot of prayer for the preaching of it. Lord, be with us tonight. May the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of all of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. All right, jumping right back into it. Two points that I want to make as we look at the text tonight. The first we see in verses 10 through 15, and that is an exhortation to remember mercy. To remember mercy. And then, second, verses 16 through 25, remember grace and statute. Remember grace and statute. Verses 16 through 25. Let's look at the first point. Verses 10 through 15. Remember mercy. Remember mercy. Verse 10 says, And when, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build. Moses is proclaiming to Israel that there will come a time when they get to the land of promise. And it is in the land of promise that the real work of covenant faithfulness begins. Already it has begun, but the laws and the statutes that we are receiving in the book of Deuteronomy are expressly for the purpose of how they are to enter the land and what they are to do when they get there. These are the rules and the statutes. And this is what the land, the promised land, the land of Canaan should look like. A collection of people who are faithfully devoted in work and in worship and in rest to the Lord God. That's what you are to be. You are to be a nation, God says to Israel, like no other nation. And if you do this, you will be like no other nation. This is what would make Israel unique. This is what makes the church unique. As a people, as a collection of individuals, we are a society that is devoted to when we are brought in, this is how we shall live. It is according to the promise. It is according to the power and plan of God. And the Lord has great designs for Israel. And he was seeking to engage them in such a way as to maximize their delight in him. When you go in, this is how you make your existence in that land. Glorious, beautiful, wonderful, delightful, sustained in all of those things. Honor me by keeping my commands. This principle is true everywhere you go. This isn't a Western versus Eastern, an ancient versus modern. This isn't a racial, gender principle. This is, if you wish to be blessed, keep the rules and statutes of the Lord. So if I were to tell you, if you wish to be blessed, do what God commands, what is the first step? Figure out what he commands. Figure it out. Discern. Learn. Study. Commit to memory. All of the things that are given by God to you that are instruments of blessing. Now, that's good as far as it goes if it were to occur in a sort of moral vacuum, but it doesn't, does it? Whenever God's law comes to us, it comes to people who are 
pushing back on the rule and reign of God. We're pushing back through idolatry. We're pushing back just through apathy. We just want to be left alone. And that sort of libertine ideology even applies to the lordship of Christ Jesus. But we are a people. The Christian. In fact, I asked this question. Your children know the answer to this. If you call yourself a Christian, and you do all of these things that are displeasing to the Lord, what does that mean about your profession? Does it make it sincere? No, it doesn't. You know, the answer was such enthusiasm. But then I asked the question, well, wait a second, do Christians sin? Well, yeah. So if a Christian is confronted with his sin or her sin, what ought she rightly do? Now, when Saul was confronted with his sin, what did Saul do? He blamed Samuel. He ran from it. When David was confronted by Nathan the prophet of his sin, what did he do? He fell on his face and he cried out to the Lord for mercy. It was too late. He'd already sinned. That bridge had been crossed and burned. There was no getting back across it. And so whenever the law comes to us, it comes from a God who the scriptures say is very much aware of our weakness and our infirmities. And he knows that the very thing he asks of us cannot, in fact, be supplied by us. If God said to Joshua, all right, Joshua, I'm going to stand, I'll be back here, y'all go take the land, what would have happened? Well, we saw what happened to Israel and when they went and fought the nations without the help of the Lord, they were defeated. But any time the Lord fought on their behalf, they were victorious. In fact, Israel won a battle one time because Moses held up a stick. And every time the stick would lower, Israel would lose. And every time the stick would be raised, Israel would win. What kind of military tactic is that? All right, U.S. Army, your lieutenants are now going to be in the field with sticks. And every time, I mean, can you imagine that as a battle strategy? Or Gideon. Gideon was a coward. He was hiding, making wine in a hole. And God comes to him and he says, I want you to deliver Israel. And Gideon tries to get out of it twice. The whole testing with the fleece and the dew thing. And then when God does call Gideon and he uh, mounts an army, all of these Israelites come out, about 10,000. The pagan army is about 100,000. So the odds are already bad. And God says, no, 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 no. You got too many people. Anybody that's scared can go home. What? So a ton of people left. And then God says, this is, I want you to go to a, a brook, a stream. And I want you to evaluate military credentials based upon whether they bring the water to their mouth with their hand or if they just sort of put their face in it and lap it like a dog. What? These are the strangest litmus tests. And Gideon ends up with 300 men. And then God says, all right, I want you to arm yourself with torches and pitchers. Like pictures from the kitchen or whatever the equivalent they had at the time. And he says, I want you to scream and light some torches. What? But unbeknownst to Gideon, 
The night before the battle, God went into the army camp, the, the enemy camp, and he sowed fear through dreams into the hearts of the enemies. They were ripe for terror. And then God says to Gideon, all right, I want you to crash the pitchers, I want you to light the torches, and I want you to scream. And they put the enemy army to flight. And then they hunted them down, and they killed them. 100,000 men dead. And the Bible tells us expressly why God did it that way. So that no one in Israel could say, we did it. Look at what we did. Because it was an impossibility. When Israel gets to the land of promise, God wants them to think about the impossibility of their arrival. This should not have happened. Why are we here? How did we come to this place? Because what God does is he works the impossible in order to sow in our hearts worship and thanksgiving. And so the Lord says, when you enter, look at what you're entering into. And we see, when the Lord, verse 10 again, your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Already the fulfillment of a promise, which is an incredible reality. With great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of good things you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, be careful not to forget how that happened. When you sit down and you pray for a meal, there is food on your table that is there solely as an act of God's free mercy. I don't care if it's processed or if it's farm to table. I don't care how it got there. It got there by God's design. It's all there because of God, which is a testimony of what? His compassion and his patience. One of the things that we really don't tolerate in our home, and I'm sure this is true of all of your homes, parents, don't you love it when you serve a plate of food? Mothers, you've spent some time, a lot of time, time that you didn't even have, but you made the time. And you make this precious meal and you give it to your kids and they go, what is this? Woe be unto you if am I in that room because you may not get that plate anymore. And that plate may go over here and here. Here's, here's a nice cup of water and some bread. This is prison food. I'm, what are you thinking? How dare you? You've been watching television and playing. You've been doing all of these things. Well, we've been over here providing and serving and preparing and what you have to say to us is, I don't like that. I remember years ago as a child, sitting at the table with my parents. My mom had had a hard day. And my mom made salmon croquettes. There are two stories in my life about salmon croquettes. I'll share one of them. 
Maybe you'll get the second one some other time. And we sit down at the table. You know what a salmon croquette is? It's, it's hard to love. I love them because I was made to eat them. It's like a little crab cake, but with salmon instead of crab. And we sit down, and I look at it, and I go, this is awful. And my mom looks at me, and she begins to cry. And my dad looks at me and says, boy, you made this problem? She goes to her bedroom because she's crying so much. You better get in there. You better fix it. I'm going, uh, what have I done? When the Lord brings Israel into the land, the act of gratitude is worship. It is to look at all that God has done, and it's all good. And the posture and the disposition of the hearts of Israel should be this. Lord, we see what you have done for us. Ask of us anything and we will do it. We'll do anything you ask. But here's the interesting thing. God never asks of us things that are arbitrary just to simply test our allegiance. God only asks of us those things that do two things. Nurture our relationship with him. That is, grow us more closely to him. And also increase our delight in him and everything else. The reason that the people around you are broken and hurting is because they delight in the things of this world without delighting in God first and the things of this world as God has designed. And in fact, C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Weight of Glory, and he speaks of the mercy of God and the call to salvation. It's like someone going to a child, and they're playing in the mud, and they say, here's a holiday at the sea, the beach. And the kid looks at him and goes, I'm okay, I'm good. Because they cannot envision anything better than building mud pies. This is the level of sight the unbeliever has. They do not see it. And God is constantly throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, throughout all of Revelation, showing us how to look at things. When you are there, remember how it is you got there, why those things are there that are there, and don't forget now, how do you not forget something? You know how I don't forget something? I have a notepad. It's on my home screen. And as soon as someone says something to me, I say, let me type that into my notepad. This is your notepad. Everything you need to know to not forget is right here. And in fact, what God says, and we'll get to that point, and I want to be careful not to jump ahead, that the thing at the top of every notepad that is law is a story about your deliverance. Begin every dialogue about God's righteous requirements with, Son, remember, remember the statutes and the rules. And those statutes and rules come from a God who has done X. God provides gospel and then the law. He shows us our deliverance and how we have been delivered. And then he says, in light of my mercy, live this way. 
And so any disobedience for those who dwell in the land, and by sitting here tonight, you are in the land, in essence. You are members of the visible church. You are participating in the worship of God. And whether you like it or not, it's too late. You've heard the good news of the gospel. And now there is this clear call. Don't reject the good gift that you have. And don't reject the good revelation that God has made. Grace, grace calls us to take care. Verse 12, take care lest you forget. Forget what? How bad you had it and how good you are going to have it or now have it. The Proverbs speaks of a man returning to his sin like a dog returning to it. Have you ever seen a dog eating its vomit? Have you ever seen a dog eating another animal's feces? I have. Apparently chicken poop tastes good to a Doberman Pinscher. I didn't know that. Our dog will go out there. She made herself sick the first time we put her in that pen. She threw up four times. That's you and your sin. You look at it and go, that's the best smelling poop I've ever smelled. It's so good, I'm going to eat it. That's for the kids and for the men. Because <laughs> men never outgrow that sort of humor. You look at it and go, it's the filet mignon. And you know what? When Israel was in the wilderness and not yet in the land, they spoke of the great melons and cucumbers of Egypt. But God had milk and honey prepared. We'll eat anything if it's in front of us. That's what a sinner is. That's what idolatry is. You'll eat anything if it's in front of you. And you know why? Because we are all hungry and thirsty. And the only way that you're truly satisfied and develop a good, refined, holy taste is to feast upon the goodness of the gifts of God. Your palate needs to be transformed by God's mercy. And God says to Israel, look at how bad you had it. Take care lest you forget who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. How did God do it? He didn't use Israel. The most that happened is Aaron or Moses threw down Aaron's stick. That's it. Boop. And it turned into a stink. And the rest of it was God just showing off. And that's what he does. And you know why God shows off? Well, to glorify himself and to capture your stubborn, slow hearts and to cause you to love him. And it's not just stuff you see in the scripture. Look at how God has provided for reformation. Guys, I know a parking lot is not a big deal, but it kind of is. Especially when you're trying to walk in this parking lot at night. <laughs> And we, we pray for these things, and God is providing. Now, it doesn't make it less true if we didn't get a new parking lot that God doesn't provide. But God has made it abundantly clear, even to us, in the simple physical gifts that God gives us, that he loves us. Well, we can absolutely say that there are things that have happened in our midst where we must say, only God could have done that. Only God could have done that. And so when God confronts 
in the second section, beginning in verse 16. Don't put God to the test. Remember this. All of the sinning that saints do is a testing of God's good gifts. He's got it right here. He's got it held out in front of you. And you look at it like that ungrateful child and say, that's what we're having for dinner? And we should be saying, thank you. And so second, remember grace and statute. The mercy of God that brought Israel, but then there is this relationship of mercy or grace to the law, to the statutes. And it's this. When you get to the land, complete the work. When God put Adam in the garden, he had one, well, a couple of different roles. But Adam was called to labor outside the garden to take dominion over all the earth so that all of the earth might look like the garden. And if we think of the garden like a temple, think of it like church planting. Adam's ministry, his rightful duty, was to build the temple the garden temple of God, and along with his wife to fill that temple with people. He went out, she stayed in, he expanded the borders, and she made what was newly expanded beautiful. He put up the walls, and she laid down the carpet. They were building a holy house together until they weren't. They stopped because they decided to work for someone else instead. When God is bringing Israel into the land, he's saying, here's the land like he gave to Adam. And he's saying, make it better. Make it better. Build. But the only way that they would do that is if they would, from one generation to the next, teach their children why they're there and for what reason they're there. It doesn't do us any good if it's just one generation that does the work, is it? The mission must be completed. And so he says, You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. This is verse 18. That it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. The land could not be holy until it is filled with holy people, which means that certain people must be thrust out and those who remain must be committed to the task and the work of holiness. Keep up the good work. Oftentimes they say that when churches buy their first building, they experience a kind of, uh, sort of a lull. It's like losing the startup mentality. When you always feel like your livelihood or your future is at threat, you do what? You work, 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 work. But as soon as you feel comfortable, this is what we're experiencing in our country right now. People got way too comfortable with the kind of money they had, and they stopped pushing and reforming. It's easy to do that in our lives. It's easy to do that in our homes. It's easy to do that in our churches and in our nations. It is the effect of sin everywhere, on every level, in every sphere. And what does God say? Don't forget. What are they not to forget? The first thing they are not to forget is the story of redemption. And the second thing they are not to forget is the law that emerges out of that covenant of redemption. 
the first thing that you say to your kids, when your kids say, who are we? What are we doing? Why am I here? Why does our family do X? Verse 20, when your son or daughter asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules? Because what do kids ask when it comes to rules? Parents, what's the number one question you're asked when your kids, you tell your kids to do something? Why? And what do you say? Go on. No. Moses says, when your son asks why, here is the answer. We were slaves in Egypt. Because, son, we have been blessed by God. And because we have been saved and blessed by God, as Paul would later say, we are no longer slaves to sin, we are slaves to Christ. He has purchased us with his precious blood. He bought us, and we are his. That's why. The why is, in essence, more important than the how, or the what. Your kids will get the what. But the question is, will they get the why? Do you get the why? There is only one way that recipients of grace can live. If they are aware of the grace that is in them, they will say to the one who has shown them grace, you tell me what to do. You tell me what to do. Who do you listen to at work? The person who pays. Your check. The one whose name is there in the bottom right-hand corner. They get to tell you what to do. Why? Because they're in charge. You work for them. You are their employee. They are your employer. How much more God, who has set us free? Why has he done it? Why did God do this? Why you? In fact, that's a great question. You should ask, why me? And the scripture makes it clear. Paul makes it clear even in his own life. God chose you because you're a sinner to reveal his mercy. How did he do it? Through the shed blood of his son, as an impulse of his care and compassion. And to what end? To bring you into his house that you may share in his glory. The goodness of God is what leads us to repentance. It isn't the paper. It isn't the sacredness of a a confession. It isn't the austerity of our hearts. It's that at the very source of all of these things that are being said to us is a God who loves us and has mercy. There's no God like our God. And that's where I got into this thought. I was thinking of it even today as I was preparing for this sermon. That all the laws of pagan gods are better than the gods they point to. Do you know why? Because all the laws of pagans come from men and not those gods. And men cannot help but write laws that reflect God's rule. Not all of them. I mean, there's some pretty crummy laws out there. There's some pretty crummy religions. There's some pretty crummy views 
of eternity for these cults. And they are all contingent upon the abuse of women, basically. A godless exercise of power, pleasure, and wealth. But our God shines more gloriously than the sun. He is radiant. He is fairer than all the sons of men. In fact, if you want to know what God is like, go to the wisdom books of Scripture. Go to the Gospels. Psalm 45 is about the prince who becomes the king because he defeated the enemy, and now he gets the girl, the bride. Psalm 45 is not just about an Israel, a king of Israel. It's about Christ and his defeat of the great dragon that is Satan. Where do you think the fairy tale comes from? Kill the dragon, get the girl, right? So many of us live as though there isn't romance at the heart, at the mountain. And that is how we will be saved. From a lackluster, exhausted faith is to remember that at the center of all of this is a God who gave us something we do not deserve and shows mercy. And in fact, the updated, redemptive, historical, biblical, theological update of Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 25, is the Father has given to us the Son. And you are a member of a body that you have no right to be in except God has shown you mercy. And so even tonight as we come to the table, let us remember that great mercy and give thanks and live lives of devotion to him.